Good morning, everybody. So glad to see you. Uh, for those of you who are expecting the Jim-Lisa duo in week number two, I'm sorry to disappoint you. If you missed it last week, you can catch us on uh, our website or a podcast or something like that. But it was fun to have Lisa up here last week as we were talking in, in our series, The DNA of Good Relationships, about how to have a safe relationship with somebody, how to, how to increase safety in relationship. And remember, safety is sort of defined as where you don't feel judged or attacked or condemned or criticized. And when you have safety in relationship, and this is something I forgot to show you last week, when you have safety in your relationships, it's like hitting a home run. It's like scoring a touchdown. It's like scoring a goal. Yes, I included the hockey, even though... It's a minor sport, but, sorry. but uh, whether it's a goal, a home run, a touchdown, or yes, maybe even a slam dunk, uh, winning trust is such a relational victory, and we want to have that kind of safety in our relationships. So just quick review of last week for those of you who, whose memory may not be as sharp as others. Uh, what did we talk about last week? How to have a safe relationship? We talked about five steps to build a, a safe relationship, to become a safe person to other people. The first one is to respect the wall, to remember that other people may have relational walls that put up, that they put up against us, and they put those up probably because we violated their safety or their trust, and we've made them feel unsafe. So they have this wall, and it's instead of trying to break down the wall, to bulldoze the wall, let's respect the wall. The second step to becoming a safe person, to honor other people, to honor them, to value them as precious. Now, I have this uh, object in my hand, and I don't know if you can see it in the white and the shiny lights. Does it, does it sparkle a little, little bit? This is a much better ring than the actual original wedding ring that I had bought for Lisa when I was 21 and poor. Um, but this, this, we, this is on our 25th anniversary, so we got her a much upgraded, new and improved wedding ring. And uh, I have this ring in my hand. She, she loaned it to me. She said, take good care of this. Um, because I wanted to remind you by way of an object lesson that we are to honor others. We are to hold them in high value and esteem. And we are to, uh, to treat them as precious. And Lisa's precious to me. She has my heart and I have her heart. And I need to remember to honor her and to, to treat her as valuable and precious. That's one way to become a more safe person. The third step is to suspend judgment, which means instead of to automatically belittle or attack or criticize, uh, judge the other person and what they've said or done, let's suspend that and let's instead, let's be curious about them. Let's be fascinated about what they have to say or to share. And let's learn more we, that, that we can because we're changing as, peop, as people. The other person is changing as a person. I'm not the same person that I was when I married Lisa. She's not the same person that she was when she married me. We've both grown and we've grown together. It's one advantage of getting married young, right? So we're to be curious about each other and suspend judgment. The fourth step to becoming a safe person, to value our differences, right? Remember that whole uh, chick flicks versus Western uh, illustration that Lisa brought up? The idea of they're not, they're not rights and wrongs. A lot of our differences that we have, it's not like I'm right and you're wrong. It's just 
you like something different than I do. Maybe you like chocolate, I like vanilla. So what? We both like ice cream, right? So instead of saying, why don't you like chocolate? You know, why can't you just learn to like chocolate? You know, just instead of doing that, just say value the differences, not necessarily right or wrong. And that scripture that we brought up was from Matthew chapter 7 in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, why do you look at the speck? You know, why do you judge and condemn the speck in your brother eye when you, brother's eye when you have a log or a plank in your own eye? So, in other words, let's, let's value differences and let's suspend judgment. And then finally, the last step, let's be trustworthy. Keep our word to our loved one. Keep our word to our friend. You know, let them know that we can trust them. And, and not only be trustworthy to them, be trustworthy to ourselves. Uh, let them know that before God, I want to be a person of integrity. I want to be a person that when I, let, when I say yes, I want to let my yes be yes. I want a person. I don't have to swear on a stack of Bibles for somebody to believe that what I'm telling them is true. I want to be uh, honest and have integrity and trustworthy and have people to be able to trust me. And so those five steps, if we do that, that can lead us to having much safer relationships with other people. So now we're going to come to the fourth step. This is actually the fourth uh, message in this series, The DNA of Good Relationships. We're going to talk about two things today. We're going to talk about emotional communication, listening with our hearts, and we're going to talk about how to have a conflict that ends in a win-win for both sides. And you say, well, how is that even possible? Well, we're going to talk about how it is possible. Because with God, all things are possible. You can even have a win-win in the middle of a conflict. So let me uh, just stop. And before we continue, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless this. Heavenly Father, we want to give this time to you. We want to give you our best attention and focus on what you have to say to us. Because, Lord, life is about relationships. Our relationship that is eternal with you, our relationships with our other uh, loved ones in our lives, people we care about, people that we want to have uh, relationships of safety where we are, are free to share our hearts and our motives and our, our longings, our dreams with other people so they know us intimately and we know them. And, and we're blessed in that way to have good, deep friendships and relationships with other people. So, Father, help us to develop the skills that it takes to have that kind of deep personal communication with other people. Lord, help us to tune in. Uh, help me as I speak this message. I pray for clarity. I pray for uh, just the right words to say in the right time. And, Lord, may you get all the honor and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Speaking of emotions, uh, think about the family that you grew up in. And um, as you grew up in that family, how did your family handle emotions, right? Uh, the, author, uh, the author's son of this book, Gary Smalley, he says that in most of our families, we have either one or two extremes when it comes to emotions. So talking about how does your family handle emotions, we have one of two extremes. We either have families with emotional constipation, you know, maybe you grew up in a family that needed a little emotional metamucil, or uh, maybe your family grew up with emotional diarrhea, and maybe emodium was the better choice uh, for your family because you just vomited all over everybody. So either you held all your, emo your emotions inside, 
What my wife likes to say is our fam my family, uh, sh she would say your family when she talks about this, like not including herself. Uh, she would say, your family uh, ha always seems to have an elephant in the room, but everybody uh, has a convenient way of ignoring it, not talking about it. What elephant? You know, there's nothing wrong. Everything's fine, as long as we don't talk about anything. Uh, Lisa's family, uh, she would be on the other end of the spectrum, not the emotional constipation side. She would be more on her family, on the emotional diarrhea side, because they would talk about anything and everything. My son, Tyler, when we were growing up, we always uh, used to try to make it to Sacramento for Christmas, or at least between Christmas and New Year. And I remember a couple times uh, getting ready to drive up the I-5 uh, to Sacramento. Uh, Tyler would lean over to me and said, Dad, are we going to have a lot of drama again on this trip? And uh, drama was like the code word. Drama, you know, was, was the word that we would use to say there's going to be a lot of emotion shared and I've got some issues that I need to talk about. And there usually was on that trip. But talk about a, a way to where her family figured out a way to get through the drama and get to emotional intimacy on the other side. I want to say this about communication. Effective communication is emotional communication. Now, you cerebral, um, <clears throat> stoic people, perhaps with British ancestry, you may not agree with this, but I, I do believe this is true. Effective communication is emotional communication, where you say or the other person uh, believes this about you. I care how you feel. Your feelings matter to me. Your feelings matter to me. Now, God is the one who gave us emotions. God created us. He created us with emotions. And I think God thinks emotions are good. Emotions are good things to have. They are indicators of where we are in our life and in our circumstances. Um, God gave us emotions to indicate where we're at, but God did not necessarily give us emotions for us to make decisions on those emotions. Sometimes we may feel really emotional about something, but we need to stop and check that emotion before we react. Because like the Bible says, the Bible says, be angry. Remember in Ephesians chapter 4, the, uh, the apostle Paul is talking about relationships with other people. And he says, be angry, but do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin. Now, we were with our uh, kids and grandkids recently, and my grandson Cade uh, loaned me this toy that he has. This is probably his favorite toy because he breaks it out all the time. Uh, Cade is an emotional young boy. He's three and a half years old. And uh, this, of course, is the fist of Hulk, in case you didn't know. And uh, Hulk, when uh, he gets upset, Hulk gets angry. So he goes, Hulk, angry. And then uh, if I push this button, maybe you can hear this too. If I push this button and then Hulk, Hulk lashes out in anger, and um, Cade likes to grab both of these, and he, his favorite line, it, it, he, gets a, he gets this joy on his face, like, yeah, like he's like, yeah, and he says, Hulk, smash, Hulk, smash, and, and he loves to smash things like this. Here's the problem with anger. You know, it's not, it's not a problem to be angry about something. Sometimes anger is a trigger. Anger is a trigger from something that we're scared of or fear. Anger could be a trigger from being hurt or being offended. I think a lot of times anger can be a reaction to injustice, to something that's extremely unjust or unfair that happened. Like when Jesus went and cleared the temple, right? 
In John chapter 2 and in, in other places in the last week of Jesus' life, John, uh, Jesus came and cleared the temple because he saw the injustice of the economic exploitation that was happening over the poor people that were coming to worship God. They had to offer a sacrifice to God and they were being exploited and, and the little money that they had was being taken away from them by the money changers and the people at the temple. So Jesus just got upset and he cleared it out. There's another time Jesus got angry. He was getting ready to heal somebody. He was in the house of worship. They were, they were in the place of worship in the synagogue and a, and a crippled man came up to Jesus and asked Jesus to heal him and Jesus was getting ready to heal him. And of course, this was in the temple or in the synagogue on the Sabbath day and Jesus looks up at the religious leaders and he says, tell me, is it lawful or not to heal somebody on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees and the religious leaders just crossed their arms and didn't give him any answer at all. Like, I'm not even answering that. And Jesus said he looked around them and he was angry. He was angry at their hardness of heart. And so there's other places we're going to see where Jesus gets emotional. But I just want to remind you, if Jesus got emotional and Jesus is God in the flesh, then emotions are okay. Emotions are good. We don't have to have an emotion and immediately try to suppress it, thinking, oh, I'm going to get out of control. I'm going to lose my composure if I get emotional. Getting emotional is okay in its, in its of itself. It may not be a great uh, idea to make decisions in the midst of it, intense emo emotions. Now, let's talk about emotional communication. I want to give you an illustration uh, from a husband and wife uh, it, it, talking about emotions. Suppose, now say you're a husband, right? And suppose your wife says to you, I really don't think our kids should go to public schools. I think we should homeschool them, right? So now you're the husband, you hear this. I don't think our kids should go to public schools. I think we should homeschool them. Now, most good husbands, uh, if you're like me, you're trying to grasp what she said. Oh, first of all, uh, hold on, Lisa just said something to me. Uh, did I hear it? Did I understand it? Uh, 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 you know, roll back the tape. Try to remember what she just said because I know it was probably something important. So most good husbands, at least they try and grasp what she means. So they heard the word. So a husband tries to say back to his wife, so what I hear you saying is you don't think our kids should go to public school. And his wife blurts out, you completely missed the point. <laughs> And this husband is probably like pulling out his hair, whatever hair he has left, saying, how did I miss this? You know, was it the tone of her voice? What, what, there was something in the communication that I missed. And what he missed was the emotions. Her words said one thing, but what was she saying with her heart? What if her husband had said, are you saying that you're really concerned about our kids and where they are right now? And I think the wife would probably say, ding, ding, ding. You know, we have a winner. You know, be why? Because he finally tapped into her emotional message, her fear of the future and what the direction was going for their kids. Men, uh, let's be honest here. Men, this is not easy for us to do. Men, we tend to think in a more linear way. We tend to cut to the chase. We want to get to the bottom line. We want to find out what the problem is and fix it. Find problem. Fix problem, you know, and we do that and we go along and we think, you know, we're, we're winning and we're, we're conquering the world when we do that. Find the problem and fix the problem. And um, I remember one husband said to his wife, and I thought it was genius. He says, honey, do you want, do you want me to, f 
you know, you're, she, she's describing this problem, this crisis she's in, this rela- whatever it was. And the husband says, honey, right now, do you want me to fix the problem or do you want me to just feel the problem? And most of the time, I'm going to say 90%. It's like, at least in the beginning, is I just want you to feel the problem right now. And of course, that's not easy for us to do. Sometimes there's more to a problem than the problem itself. Often there are deep feelings that are attached to a problem. And only when we understand the feelings involved can we effectively solve the problem. It's only when a person feels understood emotionally that they feel cared for. So again, effective communication is emotional communication. So let's talk about the steps to, uh, to developing better emotional communication. The first one is obvious. The first one is listen. Number one, listen beyond the words to the feelings. And the, I don't know if these are fill in the blanks, but in your bulletin, you have some fill in the blanks and you can follow along and get the words that you were desperately looking for. <laughs> listen beyond the words to the feelings. Effective communication, it comes down to listening and speaking with your heart. Because when a person feels understood emotionally, that is when they feel cared for, right? So listen beyond the words to what the feelings are. Number two, the real message, and this goes with number one, the real message is often the emotion behind the words. It's not just the words themselves. Now, you can uh, confirm this easily with my wife, Lisa, but this this. Number two is a little hard for me because I'm linear and I listen for the words and I don't think too much about the emotions that accompany the words. I remember this loudmouth radio talk show host one time. His name was Tom. Um, he, was, he, he was an atheist, uh, but he was super interesting to listen to, for me anyway, on the radio. And uh, he always took calls in the afternoon and I would listen to because he always had something pithy to say. And uh, somebody would call in and says, hey, Tom, how you doing? And his immediate reply was, do you care? Right? How you doing? Do you care? You know, it was kind of sarcastic, right? Kind of like, eh, gotcha there. But until you think, well, if the person doesn't really care, then their question, how are you, doesn't really mean anything, right? So if you don't care, and when you ask somebody how they're doing, you know, don't expect a great reply. Um, so the real message is often the emotion beyond the feelings. So that's number one and two. Number three, allow the other person's emotions to touch you. Allow, to, uh, allow yourself to try to feel what they are feeling. You know, the Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice, right? Mourn with those who are, who are mourning. It doesn't mean that the loved one that, it, that you're grieving about, I didn't even know the person necessarily, but I feel that you are, are sad about the loss and the separation that that person's death has brought into your life. So I want to mourn with those who mourn. I want to feel the, your loss, feel the pain that you feel, um, And Jesus was very good about this. In fact, Jesus is the model for this. I want to go to the Gospel of John in chapter 11. You know, thank you, Jackie, for sharing us that uh, scripture from John 2 for the communion. In John's Gospel, chapter 11, uh, Jesus has gone to Bethany. Uh, These two sisters, Mary and Martha, their brother, Lazarus, has passed away. He's been dead four days now, and Jesus comes into town. And, uh, of course, that's when Jesus makes that great declaration when Martha says, Hey, uh, if you'd been here, my brother would have, wouldn't have died. Thanks for, coming. Thanks for coming late, Jesus. He's dead and it's too late now. And Jesus says, Hold it. 
I'm the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? And Martha says, I believe you are the Christ. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God who's come into the world. So Martha declares her faith in Jesus. Then Jesus continues and he goes on to Mary and he says, tell Mary that I'm here. Mary comes out and she says the same thing uh, to Jesus that Martha said, right? So Jesus, uh, Mary says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And look at what Jesus does. Now, remember, Jesus is already, he already knows what he's about to do. He's already about to walk out to where the tomb is and to raise this man from the dead. But before he does, look what happens and how he gets emotional. When Jesus saw her, talking about Mary, her weeping, and he saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger, a deep disturbance in his, in his inner being welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. I even think there might have been a catch in his voice when he asked that question. Where, where, where have you put him? And he was already being moved emotionally, seeing the grief of Mary and of her friends who were mourning the loss of Lazarus. They said, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. You know, shortest verse in the Bible, right? But that, that is, uh, that it, the context of why Jesus wept wasn't necessarily over Lazarus' death. It was seeing the grief. It was watching the weeping and the wailing of the loved ones whom death had, had drawn this curtain of silence between the loved ones and they were mourning and they were saying, you know, this is terrible that death happened and Jesus was moved by that. So, the, the, so Jesus wept and the people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, well, this man healed a blind man. This is a typical <laughs> critic. This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? And, and look at this, verse 38 now. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. Now, one of those questions that I think I probably just answered it, but the question is, what was Jesus angry about? What was he angry at, right? Was he angry at the people for crying? What's the matter with you people for crying? Don't you know I'm about to do a great miracle? You know, I don't think that's what he was angry at. He was angry at this this sin and death and all the destruction that it causes. And he says, I'm getting ready to put an end to it. The, the, my hour has come. The prince of darkness is about to be cast out. He's about to defeat sin and death. But before it happens, look at, at, the, at the anguish and the pain and the grief that this causes people who have lost their loved ones. And so finally, he's angry as he arrives to the tomb. A cave with stone rolled across its entrance. And he says, roll the stone aside. And then Jesus did his great miracle. So again, point number three, allow others' emotions to touch you. It's actually a good thing. I think Jesus sees emotions as strength, not as a weakness. Number four, treat communication like a dynamic process of discovery. Ooh, this is really good. This is that part about uh, when you honor others and you value them and you suspend judgment, it says you get real curious about them. You get fascinated about them. You say, I've got so much to learn about you and I'm just getting started, right? Instead of, oh, yeah, I heard the same story again. Uh, yeah, yeah, I heard it all before. I know, I know, I know. When we do that, we, you know, all the, the empathy and the emotion or communication goes out the window. 
So we want to stay engaged. We want to see communication as this dynamic process of discovery. Because communication is always shifting around and changing. It depends on the flow of the conversation. And because it's always shifting around, this communication, we've got to stay on our toes. It takes time. It takes time and engagement to discover things about the other person we didn't know before. And so the key here is to not see the conversation as, as finding the quickest way to solve the problem. You know, here we are back again, guys. Find problem, fix problem, you know. We're, you know, let's cut to the chase. Let's get to the point. How do we resolve this? Because I, because, you know, let's be honest, back to guy talk here because there's a game on that I want to get back to or there's a project that I want to get to or there's something else I want to do. So I got to deal with this now and, and solve it. And the point is to say, stop, honor the person, slow down, listen to them, see it as a, as a process of discovery and not just a quick way to solve the problem. To see, to, to understand the person better is to care for them. And when a person feels understood and cared for, even finding the solution doesn't seem to be as important. It actually says, you know my heart now. You know the way I feel. You understand me. Or like Lisa says sometimes, you get me. You get me. So it's like that couple, uh, Dan and Celeste. Remember that? Back in the first time we had the, the series when it started, Dan and Celeste had this big conflict about whether they were going to move or not move from their, their hometown. He got a job offer out of town and she didn't want to move. And they said, well, I guess the problem, this is what we got to resolve. Should we move or should we not move? And he found out there was a lot more going on behind the scenes. There was more to the story. There was The real problem wasn't just the external problem about moving or not. The real problem was the fears that they had inside. So communication is understanding, number five, not determining who is right or wrong. Not determining who is right or wrong. And I'm talking to myself here. So the key is to slow down, to listen carefully, to really try and understand the person's feelings. So you commit to talk in a safe environment. I'm going to respect the wall. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to suspend judgment. I'm going to value our differences. And I'm going to be more trustworthy. So create that safe environment where nobody has to worry about being shamed or rejected or belittled or feel punished for sharing their honest beliefs and feelings. If you're allowed to share your feelings without being judged, you're more likely to open up because you feel cared for. This is the place where the heartfelt communication can really bloom and can it grow so that's emotional communication effective communication is emotional communication now let's go to this other part that i want to get to real quick which is uh, talking about a different definition of winning because now let's talk about when you have a difference of opinion you have an argument you have a conflict where you you got two different ways of looking to about things where you maybe you are looking at a problem and how to solve it or fix it or what direction are we going to go and how are we going to get there without biting each other's heads off, right? How are we going to perhaps be angry, but do not sin? Where Hulk gets angry, but Hulk doesn't smash, right? How are we going to do that? <laughs> it's, not, it's a lot easier said than done, right? 
This, and by the way, this is relationships, and life is all about relationships. When we learn to love other people the way Jesus loves us, when we learn to treat other people the way that God treats us, we will become better communicators. We will learn these steps to greater emotional, safe communication with people. So we're talking about teamwork. When you're talking about solving a problem, let's talk about teamwork. Let's talk about adopting a no-losers policy. A no-losers policy. What's the new definition of winning? Winning is finding a solution that both people feel good about. Now, I remember I told you, Lisa and I were married, and 10 years into the marriage, we had this argument in the kitchen about, I think it was about a refrigerator. And, and I remember looking over to her, and I finally said to her, so you're saying, Lisa, you're on my team. And she goes, well, duh, right? And, and I, but it, to me, it was like this, oh, you know, the heavens opened, the skies parted, and it was like revelation finally came and got through this thick skull of mine. And it was like, you're on my team. We are on the same team. So it's not me trying to win over you to get my way, or you trying to win over me, where if you win, I lose, or if I win, you lose. And then, you know, we, you, know you do the, the superior dance. You gloat around each other as you won the argument or something. But you lost the relationship at the same time. We don't want that. We want to have a solution that both people feel good about. Is that even possible? It's, it's not just reaching a compromise. You know, you can say, well, we've got to have compromise. Sometimes compromise is okay. Sometimes compromise is like 50-50 where you get half of your way, I get half of my way. But that's not even that because sometimes the, the, there's still resentment there after the conflict that's saying, well, I gave in for the moment, but, you know, you know I might be sitting on the inside, but I'm standing up or whatever. <laughs> what was it? Sitting on the outside, but standing up on the inside. Yeah, that, that idea of uh, I've temporarily called a truce until I've regather my forces and get ready for the next assault, you know, that's not, a, that's not winning, that's not winning communication, right? Because we want to adopt a no losers policy and that's the first one. So how can you find a solution that both of you feel good about? The first step is adopt a no losers policy. When you look at the New Testament, it doesn't talk about what our culture calls team sports. Now I love team sports, played them all my life, I enjoy them, I, um, probably volleyball is one of my favorites. Uh, volleyball is a sport you can't play by yourself. You know, there's sports that you play individually and there's sports that you play in a team. And uh, uh, when you play volleyball, for example, uh, one of the keys to volleyball is this idea of a bump and a set and a spike that you work together toward a common goal, right? So there's, a, there's a il great illustrations of team sports. Unfortunately, the New Testament doesn't talk about those. So let's go back to the New Testament talking about the uh, concept of a body. The concept of a body and the different organs that are within one body and how those organs are all supposed to work together to accomplish a common goal, which is like health and strength and, and doing the kind of things that we wanna do. So when the New Testament talks about the picture of a body, what the Apostle Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 12, by the way, preview, probably in August, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians 12, May 20th, the week after Mother's Day, is when we're starting a new series on 1 Corinthians. I, I haven't decided whether to call it bodybuilding or spanking the saints, but it's going to be, but it's going to be one of those. You like that one better, yeah. Ah, there's something that's to be said about which of those titles you choose, but something's said about you. All right, there, 
Now, here's what the Apostle Paul talking about a body. It says there should be no division, talking about the body of Christ and the different spiritual gifts that God gives us. But he says there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, that's a great idea of teamwork of the body working together for the common good. Now, let me just give you this illustration. Could you imagine, can you imagine what would happen if your body tried to function according to the rules of a win-lose system where there has to be winners and losers rather than the win-win policy where there's no losers in a conflict? And in other words, suppose your heart and your kidneys start talking. Suppose your heart and your kidneys get in a big argument with each other, right? About which organ is more important to the body, right? The heart or the kidneys? And the heart comes up and he starts off and the heart says, I'm here to pump you up. No, that's a, di sorry, that's a different illustration. Couldn't resist that one. But the heart says, hey, I pump, I pump blood throughout the whole body. Without me, every organ dies, including you, kidneys. And the kidneys come back and say, well, that may be true, heart, but if the blood doesn't go through me, then all you would accomplish with your constant pumping is to poison the entire system. And so guess who dies? Heart. <laughs> That's kind of a ridiculous illustration because in reality, both the heart and the kidneys are vitally important to the function of any single body. Both of them are important to the health. What would happen if the heart won and the kidneys lost? The body would die. What would happen to the body if the kidneys won and the heart lost? The body would die. Either way, both lose. So in number two, in healthy relationships, everyone wins. In healthy relationships, everyone wins. If we see relationships as teamwork instead of you versus me or how can I get my way versus you getting your way, if we can see them as teamwork, then we could commit ourselves to a cooperative strategy. The Bible says this in Ephesians 5.21. This, uh, this is a great uh, verse on unity in a marriage relationship. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? And that's talking to husbands to wives and wives to husbands. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why? Because the, the, the health of our relationship, the health of our marriage is more important then whether or not I get my way in this moment about this topic and issue. The relationship is more important than whether I get my way or not. So, healthy relationships, everybody wins. Let's talk about these steps to win-win solutions. And now I gotta really speed up. Here we go, seven steps to a win-win situation. I'm gonna go fast, so don't worry, I'm not going to 1045. Uh, seven steps. Number one, establish a no-losers policy. Actually have this attitude. And this, you got to be really Christ-like to have this attitude. I will tell you. Because the, the desire to get your own way sometimes just overshadows everything else. Uh, I won't feel okay about a decision unless you also feel good about it. That's how you establish a no-losers policy. I'm not going to feel good about this decision or the solution or the solve of the problem until you also feel good about it. So establish a no-losers policy. Number two, listen to how the other person feels. Listen for their heart. Try to understand and feel their emotions. For you, can, you can ask yourself, like I do sometimes when Lisa gets 
Uh, her voice starts raising. The decibel level starts going up. She gets more animated. Her face gets a little more red than usual. And I see that happening and I go, hmm, even, even this guy can figure some things out. And I'm going, hmm, why is this such a big deal to you? Or why do you feel so strongly about this? What is going on? In other words, there's more to the story than just the, the, the initial words that are coming out. And so I even can stop and say, you know, why is this such a big deal to you? Why is this so important to you? So listen for how the other person feels. Put your own feelings temporarily on hold and find out what the other person feels about the issue. Number three, ask God for his opinion and his direction. Pray together. Now, boy, that's easier said than done in the middle of a conflict. Pray together. See if the Bible addresses the issue. What I loved when I, I, I saw this Gary Smalley and he was talking, he said, he said, you know, in a conflict, I, you know, I, say, I say, sometimes you need to stop and pray together. And I know that's very difficult to do. And I says, I know that because in 40 years of marriage, uh, there are times in the middle of a conflict, I said, I, I said, we need to be on the same page here, Norma. And I go to, I go to grab her hand or to hold her hand and she goes, mm, don't touch me. You know, <laughs> you know, or I go to put my arm on her shoulder and she goes, get away from me, you know. And when you see that, does that body language indicate something? Have you come to this point of safety in your relationship where you trust one another, where you're, you're feeling good about each other? No. So you've got to deal with the relational wall at that point. And so if, but if you are okay, you can go to God together, ask for his opinion and direction. You can share your perspective. If you have something what the, you think the Bible thinks about this issue, again, not just an argument point to get your way, but says the Bible's pretty clear on, on what we should do about this, right? Chances are good. You're still, uh, you want to see each other as teammates rather than as adversaries. So ask God for his opinion and direction. Number four, brainstorm. Brainstorm together about a win-win solution. What could we do uh, to, to get a win for everybody? Look for a creative solution. Hear each other out. Give each other, this is, this is going to be tough, give each other the opportunity to lay an idea on the table and not just to lay the idea on the table, but practice the five-second rule, which is I love this idea for at least five seconds, Right? For at least five seconds. In other words, instead of immediately trying to marshal the arguments of why that's a dumb idea and why that won't work and why we should just, you know, abandon it immediately, because what happens when you do that? You know, you're kind of trying to come up with a solution to a problem together for a win-win, no loser's policy. What happens when the person lays an idea on the table and it's immediately shot down? What happens to their hearts, right? Relational wall. You know, feeling judged, criticized, not cared for, not listened to, all kinds of stuff. So you want to brainstorm about a win-win solution. Don't tear down each other's idea immediately and tell all the reasons why it won't work because you crush creativity when you do that. You, you do not want to turn it back into a win-lose win situation. You're working together in this problem to come out with a solution where there's no losers, right? To come out with a win-win. Number five, after this brainstorming, now you're selecting a win-win solution, an idea that both of you can feel good about. Now, experience and research has told me the following, that if you do these steps, by the time you get to selecting a win-win solution, it's almost as if you, you 
temporarily, I guess, forget like who came up with the good idea, who came up with the right course and direction to go. In other words, it's not about whether it was my idea, whether it was your idea. It's about, hey, that looks like the best idea. And let's go that direction. And hopefully you can select a win-win solution um, and, and go that direction. And then number six is implement your solution. Let's try it out. And number seven is really important because you have, to, you have to be a big enough person to admit, hey, we tried it this way and I thought it was going to work, but it didn't really work. And I was wrong. And back to the 12 words, mag back to the 12 magic words of marriage. I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. I love you. And let's try a better solution. And, um, I, you know, if you're in the win-lose thing, if you have enough humility, you can say, okay, I guess we'll try it your way now. And then hopefully it'll work out better that way. So the idea is to have a win-win in the relationship. Um, what really matters is that the decision that you guys come up with is something that you can both endorse. Something you can both endorse and feel good about. Um, if you want to just get your way all the time, and I want you to show the picture of the boat. Okay, this is a beautiful picture. It's a little not pixelated very well. I'm so happy when Gene Neighbor gets back, you know, he can help solve all these problems. But, but anyway, you can sort of get the idea. Maybe it looks like a Monet painting that's not real detailed. But anyway, <laughs> where there's a boat and two people in the boat. Do you notice that each person has an oar, right? So the idea of if that boat is going to go across the lake and not go in a circle one way or go in a circle the other way, what's going to have to happen for that boat to succeed and to get to the other side, right? They're going to have to row and they're going to have to do it together. So you need to find a win-win solution to the problem. You need to have a no-losers policy. Now what happens in the middle of trying to solve, an, solve a problem if the guy gets angry and he says, hmm, me not get way. Hmm, Hulk angry. Hmm, Hulk smash. Hmm, Hulk destroy. You know, what happens if you, if you get that way? You know what that's like in the middle of a conflict? That's like being in that boat and the guy uh, gets out from uh, his seat and he goes and he finds a shotgun on the other side of the rowboat and he starts blasting holes in the bottom of the boat. Is that what's going to happen to the boat, Right? So he's thinking, I'm angry and I'm letting my anger out and I'm getting my way here. Boom, blowing holes in the boat and the boat's going to sink and the whole relationship's going to lose. And he's ultimately going to lose trying to get his own way. So it's not about just getting your own way all the time. It's about being a safe person. It's about respecting. It's about these two things, really. It's about... You know, because you have two ways you can treat the other person. You can have it my way or the highway. You can have it Hulk getting angry and smashing and demanding your own way. You got to let that anger, you got to let that level of anger drop. And you got to have the honor and the preciousness of the relationship. That has to be lifted up. Drop the anger level and raise up the honor level. And you're going to be much closer to come into a win-win situation. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the author of relationships. Lord, you, you, first of all, you're a trinity. You're Father, Son, Holy Spirit. From all eternity, you've been in relationship. And you created us because you love us. You created us to have a right relationship with you. 
And Lord, we, we're here, you know, living this life, trying to get by, trying to have good relationships with other people. And sometimes we feel lost. We feel like a failure. We feel like they're not going right. And sometimes, Lord, it's because we're not in a right relationship with you. And if there is anybody here listening, whether you're here in this room or you're listening online, and you don't first have that right relationship with Jesus Christ, I can tell you it's going to be very, very difficult to have right relationships with other people because they won't be based on grace and unconditional love. It'll be based upon what can you do for me and how can I get my own way. So Father, I pray that you would remind us that eternal life is this, to know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. I pray that, that everybody would reach out to you, Lord, and say, I want that eternal life relationship with you. Because, Lord, you promised us not just a life, you promised us an abundant life if we would be in a right relationship with you. So thank you for sending Jesus to take care of the penalty for our sins. Thank you for offering us forgiveness through your son. And Lord, we embrace Jesus. We follow him. We put our trust in him. And we, we say now, Lord, help me to deal with the anger side of my life. Help me to learn what it is to love and to honor other people and to value them more than I value getting my own way. Help me to live that kind of life. To your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.